I'm Cameron Silsby, and you're listening to the Van City Church Podcast. This teaching is part five in our series, Practicing the Way Sabbath. One of the pushbacks to practicing Sabbath is the fear of legalism. For the follower of Jesus, what is our relationship to the Sabbath, and how do we practice it in such a way that models God's rest to those around us? All right, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus 31 is the second book in your Bible. Um, Tonight, we are wrapping up our teaching portion of our practice on the Sabbath. We spent the last few weeks working through what it means to intentionally and rhythmically test uh, or rest, uh, (laughs) not test. I have school all next week. I think that's why what's happening, you know, Freudian slip, whatever. Um, Rhythmically rest, taking our cue from God's rhythm of work and rest in creation. So we've done a ton of work up to this point. So if you've missed any of it, go ahead and catch up via our podcast. Um, And just a heads up, uh, we have a teaching up on the podcast from last week, even though we had to cancel church because of some unfortunate toilet issues. And seeing as it was on Super Bowl Sunday, the puns were endless. Um, Our friend Bethany was going to come and teach on the Sabbath last week, and so we have the teaching that she did uh, from Bridgetown up on our podcast, uh, just so that you don't lose any of the teachings in the Sabbath, Sabbath practice, okay? I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, I went to Adventist church on Saturdays. I went to Adventist school, kindergarten through high school. Uh, every summer, there was this thing called camp meeting where uh, the Adventist people in the region would all come together to a campground, and they would camp, and there would be food, and there would be uh, games, and it was essentially like church all week long. Um, I was thoroughly ingrained in the Adventist life and culture. And if you don't know anything about Seventh-day Adventists, let me help you understand something about them. A distinctive of Adventist theology is wrapped up in this idea of keeping the Sabbath. From sundown Friday to sundown Saturday is the Sabbath. How one keeps the Sabbath may vary depending on how hardcore of an Adventist you and your family are, but everyone agrees that the Sabbath should be kept and that the Sabbath is on Saturday. So my whole family was Seventh-day Adventist. My dad's mom was like the matriarch of our Seventh-day Adventist heritage, particularly in keeping the Sabbath. Uh, She lived a few hours north of Oregon City where I grew up, and so we only saw her a few times uh, a year, but just more on her in a moment. So depending on how conservative of an Adventist you were, there was a long list of prohibitions for the Sabbath. No TV or movies unless they were about God or the Bible. Uh, No video games unless it was the one video game I knew of for the Sega Genesis where you were like Moses and you were wandering around the wilderness. You were shooting W's, which were words, I guess, at your enemies to destroy them or pushing boulders to just crush them. And it was all played to the tune of this, like, simple, cheesy Father Abraham uh, the whole time, through the whole background. And uh, obviously, it was a horrible, lame game. So uh, you weren't allowed to play any fun video games on Sabbath. You weren't allowed to read magazines or books unless it was about the Bible or was the Bible or some Adventist quarterly publication. So no participating in anything competitive either, so I couldn't go play football or basketball with my friends. Um, And uh, intentional physical exercise was prohibited as well, unless it was like a nice walk or hike in order to appreciate God's creation. 
Now, uh, my immediate family was a bit more liberal when it came to the Sabbath, which meant as long as I watched like the movie Independence Day or something like that with a low enough volume so that my mom couldn't hear it, she never like went out of her way to stop me from doing those kinds of things. But if we had friends over or we were at other people's houses then uh, that, like, that were stricter than we were, we would like uh, merge with their strictness and we would just do what they were doing. So that usually meant that we'd grab a farmer's almanac and look up the precise minute that the sun was going to go down. And then uh, me and my my friends would just play in a room with Legos, recreating Bible scenes, quietly talking about what video games we were going to play once the sun came down. But uh, when my grandma, the matriarch of the Sabbath, came, uh, it, it was miserable. Uh, she was the strictest Sabbath keeper I knew, and she wanted to make sure every, everyone else was keeping the Sabbath properly, too. So I would be, you know, secretly kind of trying to watch Independence Day, and she would just appear, like standing with her hands on her hips, just like, at least that's the mental image I have in my mind. I'm not sure if she was actually striking that pose. But she often wouldn't say anything until I noticed her. Like, I don't know how long she had been there. I, part of me, I'm like, looking back, I'm like, I wonder if she was actually, like, watching the movie, too. But then when I saw her, she was like, oh, wait, you're not supposed to be doing that. I don't know. Um, Anyways, she would then scold me for breaking the Sabbath um, and so on. Or I would be in my room reading a, like a Sports Illustrated for kids, and um, she would appear in my doorway with her hands on her hips, uh, waiting for me to notice her, scold me, and then invite me to sit on the couch with her and read the Adventist publication. So Sabbath was a bit of an inconvenience normally, um, but when Grandma was around, I hated it. And, and just so that we're clear and in all fairness, I love my Grandma. And I'm also thankful that I was introduced to Jesus and the scriptures growing up Seventh-day Adventist. I was able to lay like a basic, solid understanding of God, and that drew me back to him when I was 20 after walking away from Jesus towards the end of high school. But when it came to the Sabbath, uh, the line of thinking that my grandma was taught and that I was taught in school was that keeping the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. So not keeping the Sabbath would be the same as breaking one of the other Ten Commandments like adultery or murder or lying or stealing. Um, and if you willfully choose to sin against God by purposefully and consistently breaking one of the Ten Commandments, then are you even saved? It at least calls it into question, right? So then keeping the Sabbath was the marker for the true and faithful follower of Jesus. That was the line of thinking I was taught. For us, undertaking this practice of Sabbath, uh, is this where it leads? A sort of kind of haughty legalism, a figurative grandma looking over your shoulder ready to scold you if you do anything you're not supposed to on the Sabbath. Uh, talking to uh, a lot of people, I think this is one of the biggest reactions against practicing Sabbath. It's rigid, it's legalistic, it's Old Testament. And I think it's fair to ask, how do we practice the Sabbath in such a way that it doesn't become a legalistic exercise in an arrogant spirituality? And the answer, I think, lies in the fact that there's more going on with the Sabbath than we may realize. And understanding this creates a paradigm which undercuts any legalism. And it starts with building something called a tabernacle. 
So look down with me at Exodus 31. If you're there already, we're going to go on a journey together from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It'll be some work, but we'll tie it all together in the end, okay? So let's start reading in verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come. So you may know that I am Yahweh who makes you holy. You may have noticed this doesn't come from the section housing the Ten Commandments, nor does it come from Moses' retelling of the Ten Commandments some 40 years afterwards in the book of Deuteronomy. The context of this one is actually really interesting and important. So Israel has just been freed from slavery in Egypt. They are weak and an insignificant nation traversing a desert with no homeland. They have a national God that strangely seems to be moving with them from Egypt and now to the desert. He's not like the other gods tied to a specific place. There's no statue of him. There's no physical representation. And yet his power has been made evident in the defeat of the world superpower Egypt who had enslaved them. And they've come to the mountain where Yahweh now wants to meet with them, and his presence on the mountain seems too powerful and wild to approach, so they send Moses up the mountain to represent their nation to him. And eventually Moses comes down, tells Israel about the ways in which Yahweh wants them to live and what he expects of Israel, and they agree agree to it. They agree to enter this relationship with Yahweh, but then Moses goes back up the mountain. Yahweh has something more in mind. Moses starts receiving instructions about how to build a moving tent or a a tabernacle. It's to be a beautiful, artistic work that will house God's presence among his people. And it's too good to be true for a nation of slaves uh, that the creator God, Yahweh, actually would like to live among them. Not a statue of him, not a painting of him, his very presence So artists are commissioned to get the work started. But then we come to verses 12 and 13. And this command to keep the Sabbath is right after the artists are commissioned to get started. It's almost like they're about to start hitting the first nail into the post to start getting the framing done. And it's like, and hold on one more thing. And notice in verse 13 this idea of a sign. There's two things going on with this sign. First, Um, It's a sign, Sabbath is a sign between Israel and Yahweh. It points to the reality of their relationship, a covenant relationship, a relationship of commitment and love. It's also a sign for uh, the generations, meaning uh, those that come afterwards, the kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. Yahweh is saying the Sabbath is a sign of his ongoing relationship with Israel, and it's a sign that their kids and grandkids get to witness and experience as well. But this sign reveals something about Yahweh. He wants Israel to know about how he acts in their relationship. He wants them to know he's the one that makes them holy, which simply, uh, this word holy simply can mean set apart, different, unique, for a special purpose. He makes them holy because without him, they can't be holy. So Sabbath isn't just a law to keep in order not to sin. It has a relational element with God. It tells Israel something about who Yahweh is and what he does. Okay, so we're almost done in Exodus, and then we'll jump to the New Testament. Just one more point to make in all of this. Uh, The idea of Israel being made holy isn't just so that people can uh, look at them and say, 
huh, they look different. Um, it has to do with who they are to be as God's people. It has to do with their calling. So turn over to the left a few pages to Exodus chapter 19. And we're just going to look at verse 6. Exodus 19 verse 6. Here's what Yahweh has to say to, to this nation of slaves. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Yahweh tells this to Israel when they first arrive at the mountain to meet him. And it's almost laughable at this point in the story. Um, a nation of slaves who don't have a home and don't have a way of doing government and don't even have a concrete religion with which to relate to Yahweh through. But for Yahweh, uh, he has a bigger perspective than for just Israel in all of this. For them to be a kingdom of priests means they are a mediator between God and the other nations around them. They are to bring Yahweh to the other nations and then bring the other nations to Yahweh's presence. They're also not supposed to live like the other nations. They are to be holy or set apart, different, unique. The way they live is to point to the reality of Yahweh and who He is. It's quite a privilege for a bunch of slaves, but also a responsibility as well. So, to sum up all of this, Israel is tasked to build a tabernacle for God's presence, but right before they start the work, Yahweh reminds them to Sabbath. He tells them that it's a sign and wants them to get that He makes them holy or different or set apart. This holiness is tied to how Yahweh wants to be in the world, to be known in the world, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, good job. Uh, we've done our Old Testament work, and at this point, you may be thinking to yourself, that's great for Israel, but what does this have to do with me as a follower of Jesus? I get that the Old Testament commanded Israel to Sabbath, but what does that really mean for me? And I think a key scripture for us as followers of Jesus in our practice of Sabbath is found in Colossians 2. Check this out, what Paul wrote to this church in the city of Colossae. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, or a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. So Paul is listing these religious acts. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The Sabbath day was a shadow of things to come. The full rest is found in Israel's Messiah, Jesus. Does this mean Sabbath should be thrown out, um, that we have the rest that we need uh, in Jesus? Yes. And also no. Uh, the author of Hebrews, writing some 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, draws this out from Israel's story for followers of Jesus when he writes, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. There remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. And for us, this is kind of a verse that's tucked away. Uh, Hebrews is uh, a good book, but a hard book to get through, um, at least for me. Um, but what's really interesting is this section ensures a reorientation of our relationship to God and the work that he gives. Think back to what we were talking about a bit ago with Exodus and the tabernacle and the reminder uh, to Sabbath for Israel. A danger for Israel was that it would be too enthusiastic in building the tabernacle. 
I mean, uh, we can't blame them, right? Uh, they are readying a space for God's presence to stay among them. That is huge. But Yahweh is encouraging Israel with the Sabbath. He's reminding them that He's the one that does the work to make them holy. They don't accomplish this by building the tabernacle. The Sabbath is a sign of their relationship, a sign more important than the tabernacle that houses God's presence. And so they are encouraged to prioritize Sabbath over the building of the tabernacle. As followers of Jesus, the parallels are here for us to grasp if we do uh, a little bit of work. We are brought from darkness into light, uh, from death to life, from slavery to sin, into freedom in Messiah through entrusting our lives to Jesus as Lord. We are given privileges and responsibilities out of this reality to shape our whole life. There's work for us to be doing, unending work, in fact, critical work, work that we are expected to participate in as followers of Jesus. And yet, the work is not to replace our actual relationship with our God, with our good Father in heaven. He's done the work of making us holy or set apart or different through Jesus. We have been adopted into his family now as sons and daughters. The work that's left for us to do is to figure out how to live in that reality step by step with him by our side the whole time. Our work with our Father is relational. It is not transactional. It is not a tit-for-tat relationship. By working for him and with him, we draw closer to him. And the risk of following Jesus and not practicing Sabbath is the risk of flipping the encouragement of the Sabbath around that we found in Exodus 31. Instead of Yahweh being the one who makes us holy, we make ourselves holy as our sign of our relationship with Yahweh. And when that takes place, the question will always linger, did I do enough? And the rest found in King Jesus answers that question, uh, no, you couldn't do enough, but I did. Rest and celebrate with me in this reality. The Sabbath for the follower of Jesus is the practice of resting in Jesus and celebrating that we have been set apart or made holy because of him. Once we begin to understand this paradigm, it completely guts Sabbath as a legalistic practice. And one of the ways it undermines legalism is forcing us to examine who we really believe God to be. Is he more like a pharaoh of Egypt, a slave master concerned more for the work and the product than the actual people? Or is he a good father who wants us to relate to him as sons and daughters, giving us privileges and also responsibilities as full members of his family? The difference between these two seem vast, but in reality, I think they can play out in subtle ways, especially in the context of Sabbath. For instance, if your paradigm for God is more like a slave driver, then when it comes to Sabbath, there will be a nagging fear to come near to God for a whole day. Why? Maybe because you didn't read your Bible for the last few days leading into your Sabbath. Uh, perhaps you binged on Netflix for hours the night before. Maybe you were really harsh with your spouse or with your kids. The ways in which you feel like you have failed God hover over your Sabbath. And the ways we, do, we fail do matter, but they don't matter 
in a way that should make us be anxious about spending a day resting with our Father. They don't change the fact that we are still His kids, that He loves us, wants us to be near Him, and delights when we are. The goodness of our Father even makes Sabbath a time to address our failures and shortcomings in His gentle presence. Practicing Sabbath is in part a practice in trusting our Father that our place in His family is secure, that you're safe in His presence. The work to guarantee all of that is done and complete. Uh, I was talking with some Jehovah Witnesses over the span of a couple years. Um, They would come in, and um, I actually invited them in. Uh, I I don't know. I just wanted to talk theology with somebody. I guess I was kind of desperate, but um, honestly, uh, their their names were Vic and Abdul, and we... uh, we really enjoyed each other. We enjoyed spending time sitting down talking theology. Uh, we disagreed about quite a bit, but we respected each other and engaged with each other and asked good and fair questions. And, and one of the times I talked, about, uh, I talked to them about adoption into God's family and how the presence of the Holy Spirit guarantees and helps us experience being children of God. And I remember very plainly Abdul telling me that they believed that they weren't actually adopted yet. Um, They were more like foster kids needing to prove themselves as God's children. And once they did, they would be fully brought into God's family. And some of you who have fostered kids, or maybe you have in the past fostered kids, uh, you may be baffled by that analogy because that's not how you view the kids that you foster, but that's the analogy that Abdul gave. That difference of adoption and fostering may seem somewhat insignificant, maybe just like theological semantics, but it has profound impact on how you relate to God. If you are just a foster kid in God's family trying to prove yourself worthy to be fully a son or a daughter, can you ever be sure you've done enough? What happens when you inevitably fall short? If God is keeping score, why would you want to be with him when you've failed him? And while I don't think anyone here would describe our relationship to God as foster kids in his family, I think a similar mentality creeps into the way of thinking and viewing God. I may begin to start to doubt if he really loves me. Have I done enough to deserve his love? Have I made myself worthy enough to hear from his spirit, to see him working in my life? He says cool things or does cool things through other people, but not me. Have I finished, you know, building my tabernacle yet for him, so to speak? And and if I don't believe my work is finished, how could I ever take a Sabbath? But the scriptures make it clear over and over that this whole salvation from slavery to adoption into God's family, the story of how he is rescuing us and the world, flows from his love and initiative, not some work that we've done to make ourselves worthy. You see shades of it in the story of Israel. Moses straight up says this to the Israelites in Deuteronomy. He says, understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that, the, that Yahweh your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. And you might think like, Moses, that's pretty harsh of you, but I think at this point in the story with all of their shenanigans, even Israel would be like, yeah, I can't argue with that one, you're right. Okay, so you have this idea explicitly stated throughout the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Or this one. We love because he first loved us. Or another one. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And probably the most famous one from the New Testament, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Get the point? Sabbath is our chance to trust our good father's love and initiative to delight in the good of life, to step back from our work and enjoy it with him and say, this is very good. There's always work to be done. There will always be work to be done. Our tabernacle is never finished, so to speak. In the words of Paul from Ephesians 2, we are made, or we are God's handiwork, made in King Jesus to do good works prepared for us in advance. And yet, there's still a Sabbath rest for the people of God, a time to stop working. You know, my uh, grandma eventually softened, um, not just like giving up on us softening, but I think actually like the Holy Spirit uh, softening her heart. Um, she still loved and, and kept the Sabbath, but stopped being like the Sabbath police. And then interestingly enough, the Adventist church as a whole has moved in this direction over the last decade or so, um, slowly shifting from kind of a more Sabbath rigidity to an invitation to delight in God and his creations through Sabbath. And I'm thankful for this. My mom is still Seventh-day Adventist. I went to Seventh-day Adventist seminary. And just seeing this shift over time is exciting. Thinking about my past uh, with the Sabbath, I think it's important for us to draw uh, this from Exodus 31. Sabbath as a sign. For parents, how we talk about God or don't talk about God helps shape our kids. How we relate to God as well. Uh, does as well. If we are anxious, never being able to rest, always moving on to the next thing to do in our lives with Jesus, you know, that would probably paint more of a picture of God as a slave master over time. But if we work hard and take following Jesus very seriously, and that seriousness includes resting and delighting in God's goodness and generosity, then that also paints a picture for our children of who God is. You know, I saw both sides of this uh, in, in the Sabbath, you know, growing up. I've already told you, uh, you know, about my grandma, hands on the hips, scolding me for lack of reverence uh, on the Sabbath. Um, and, you know, I naturally have somewhat uh, of a bent towards idealism and kind of a perfectionistic streak. And this has translated how I assume God sees me. So my mistakes, my failures, my shortcomings, my sins are, are what he sees when he looks at me. And uh, it's, it, <laughs> it's stuff that I'm working on, and, and let, let me say this. Um, this is not how God actually sees me or you, um, but it's something that I have to work through. And while it would be utterly unfair and not right to blame this all on my grandma, I know uh, her way of keeping Sabbath didn't help my view of God either. And then on the other hand, Adventists throw amazing potlucks. Um, all vegetarian, which is just like the cultural thing for them. Uh, but man, uh, so 
good. Uh, after church on Saturdays, going into the dining hall and having like a seemingly endless amount of delicious vegetarian food. And these were the days before being vegetarian was cool, so there was like nothing to buy in the store. I remember they had like, oh man, bad stuff, just really bad stuff in the store in those days. So everything was like homemade and it was like fresh and it was good and it was flavorful. <sighs> And I just remember everyone sitting around the tables, um, eating, enjoying each other. Even the grumpy people in the church seemed a lot less grumpy in those moments. I don't know if it was them or me, but whatever was happening, it was working. And after eating, all the kids would go run outside playing in or around the pond behind the church. It was great. It was a really great time. And what's interesting as a kid is I never tied this time directly to the Sabbath. It was just like an after-church thing that we did that had food. Um, but as an adult, I, I understand this is more of how Sabbath is intended for followers of Jesus. Joy, gratitude, fun, enjoyment, delight, all with the stamp of approval and full participation of our good Father through His Spirit. And what an opportunity, what a sign the Sabbath can be for our kids uh, so that they can know who God is, the character of our Father, and the freedom we have to rest in Him and delight with Him, because He's done the work to make us holy. And this idea of Sabbath as a sign isn't just for our kids, it's for our neighbors, fam friends, family, co-workers as well, uh, whoever is around us. A.J. Swoboda says this in his book, Subversive Sabbath. He writes, as the church enters Sabbath, it is embodying the rest of God for the world. And it is God's rest that the world needs. In a world where the overall sales of various energy drinks, such as Monster Energy and Red Bull and Rockstar, have increased some 5,000% since 1999, embodying Sabbath will offer a witness and context for conversations of eternal importance with a broken, lost world. Remember Exodus 19 and the idea of holiness translating to the call of Israel to the nations around them. Check out what Peter has to say in his letter to a, a bunch of followers of Jesus. He says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Sound familiar? Peter's applying the calling and the language that was on Israel in Exodus to followers of Jesus. We are made holy for a purpose other than ourselves. That phrase, to declare the praises, is not just singing worship songs, but it's to make known Yahweh's excellence. And since that's the case, uh, that we are made uh, to live a holy, different, set-apart life, are we constantly on the go? Are we hurried? Are we anxious? Are we stressed out? Is that any different than the culture we live in? What does that communicate about Jesus to the people around us? You know, what if instead we lived intentionally, uh, with intentionality, with purpose, with vocation, acting as if our work mattered, and then also resting consistently, de delighting consistently, setting aside a whole day just for those things. I mean, what do you think that communicates to the people around us? 
Sabbath is to live in a countercultural way, or I think another way to say that is a holy way, to show there's more to life than just work and accomplishment and, and more and more stuff. There's more to life than working for vacations and weekends and, and binging Netflix. Uh, that delight and appreciation of goodness doesn't re- require an iPhone camera, perfect lighting, or a stylish filter. That the most interesting thing about you isn't your job title. It isn't your degree program. It's not the neighborhood you live in. It's that you are a son or a daughter of the Most High God. And that reality is giving shape and direction and color to your life, forming a meaningful and profound work of art. It's so fascinating to see the questions uh, being asked about God from those who don't follow Jesus. Uh, For our parents' generations, the emphasis was in like proving or disproving God's existence, that if he existed, then you should believe in him, and and that settles it. And and it's now the case that most questions uh, have shifted from proving whether God exists to whether he is a good God. Because if he is proven to not be good, then he's not worth believing in, even if he does exist. I think it's really important for us to live in a way that shows God is good, and I think the Sabbath is one of the ways that we do this. Not everyone may see us practicing Sabbath and appreciate it. I, uh, we were Sabbathing yesterday, and I just uh, remembered that Hannah uh, is a nanny, and so the person that she nannies for texted her and was like, hey, I need to know if you know, you'll drive in the epic apocalyptic snowstorm that's going to happen this week that isn't going to happen this week now. And uh, uh, Hannah texted her back and was like, oh, hey, you know, uh, let's talk about this tomorrow. Today is our day to, you know, kind of rest and have family time um, and, and not do any work stuff. And she, like, texted back and was like, okay, cool. And then texted back a minute later and was like, actually, I need to know right now. And it's like, okay. Not everyone will appreciate the practice of Sabbath, uh, but it sure will be different, set apart, dare we say even holy, Uh, but not because we've made it that way, not because we've made ourselves that way, but because we are living in such a way that shows the holiness that God has worked in us. You know, as we wrap up the teaching portion on the Sabbath, we'll continue working through practices as communities in the coming weeks. So that means next week we'll be back in Matthew, but you'll still have the practices on the Sabbath to do. This week, you'll head over to practicingtheway.org and continue working through what it means and takes, really, to to Sabbath as a follower of Jesus. So continue practicing the Sabbath. Remember, um, if it's awkward, if uh, it's hard at the beginning, that's okay. You know, maybe you mess it up in various ways. Uh, That's why we call them practices. We don't expect you to be an expert right away. It takes time takes practice, just keep at it, and lean into resting in the work that Jesus has done for us. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us, find more teachings and resources from Van City at vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church.